go ahead and turn in the scriptures to 2 Samuel, to chapter 5. Notice, in the psalm that we sang, it said that we are graciously fed. It does not say that we are always fed what our flesh has an appetite for. And there is a distinction in this life between what we were and what we are becoming. You children, some of you, there are foods that you don't like now, which I can say with certainty, just knowing people, you're going to like some of those foods when you are older. Right now you don't like them. Your taste is going to change. And part of maturing in Christ is developing an appetite for thy will be done, whatever you will. And a lot of what the Lord wills for us in this age is painful or trying. And that is what is spiritually nourishing to us. He doesn't feed us, you know, the the spiritual equivalent of Cheetos and sugar all the time. That is what our flesh desires, just ease. But it's not what he has willed for us. He's given to us a good king, a good shepherd who cares. This evening, we come to the point where in the life of David, we can finally call him unequivocally King David. David's coronation over all Israel comes at this point, and it's a major turning point in Israel's life and in all of redemptive history, insofar as David is a picture, a prefiguring of things about Christ's kingdom. So let's give attention to the word beginning at verse 1. We'll read through verse 5. Then all the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, Behold, we are your bone and flesh. In times past, when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. And the Lord said to you, You shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them at Hebron before the Lord, and they anointed David king over Israel. David was 30 years old when he began to reign, and he reigned 40 years. At Hebron he reigned over Judah seven years and six months, and at Jerusalem he reigned over all Israel and Judah 33 years. Let's ask the Lord to bless our time before his word. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us this evening, setting aside time to rest in who you are, to rest from ordinary work and give ourselves to reflecting on the scripture. We ask that your Holy Spirit would work in us tonight to delight in who Christ is, to desire to be a part of his kingdom, and to wait patiently until that day when we behold his glory before all the world. For in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This is, despite its brevity, as just five verses, an incredibly important portion of Scripture. The historical significance of David's being crowned over all Israel cannot be overstated. Think about, humanly speaking, think about the alternative. Had David never been crowned over all Israel, in all likelihood we would not be talking about him. He would just be some tribal chieftain of Judah from long ago. He would certainly not have been the fitting representative of Christ's kingdom to come. Even Israel's history to this day, the associations with David that exist on the lips of people to this day, show that there's great importance in this portion of scripture that we're in here. 
But the spiritual significance is even more incredible than the historical turning point that it is. A thousand years after David is crowned over all Israel, the people of Jerusalem will be shouting on Palm Sunday concerning Jesus. This is in John 12, verse 13. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And as they do so, they are calling him the Son of David, the Son of David. That would have no meaning if David had not been crowned. Clearly, what we're in is very important. Then John's vision of Jesus in glory in Revelation 5.5 is one where it says, The elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. Had David remained only over Judah, a portion of all the tribes, that which we hear in Revelation would not carry the same weight. It would seem as if Christ is only going to have a portion of his appointed victory. But he will reign over all of Israel. And so there are very important parallels between what is going to happen in this text as we examine it and spiritual truths concerning Christ's kingdom. Our aim tonight is simply to glean three of those parallels, three of those spiritual principles or observations from the text. And I'm going to announce each of them as we come to them. The first of them regards Israel's desire to have David as their king. Israel's desire to have David as their king parallels aspects of why you ought, and perhaps you do, Desire Christ as your king. What was their desire based on? When you look at the text, look at me at verse 2, you'll see it was based on two things stated. In part, their desire is based on prophetic testimony. That is, long after Samuel had anointed David and declared God's will, they now recognize the truth of it. Verse 2. And the Lord said to you, you shall be shepherd of my people Israel, and you shall be prince over Israel. Why didn't that move them right away? Well, for a lot of reasons. The Lord veiled the anointing of David. He was about 15 years old at the time when he was first anointed, and God still had a purpose in Saul's reigning for some more time yet. He had a purpose in everything that would intervene. But the word concerning David was known Samuel was not the only one who had been there. David's whole family had been there. Others had seen. But then on top of that, there's a second reason. Not only are they persuaded concerning the prophecy, but practically they are convinced by David's record that God is with him. Look again at verse 2. In times past when Saul was king over us, it was you who led out and brought in Israel. They're acknowledging that throughout the whole time that David has been on the scene, he has been faithful, and they know the way that he's led. In fact, if you were to turn a couple chapters back, you would see that Abner, the general who was assassinated, had said to these elders, I know that for a long time you've wanted David to be your king. As they contrast Ishbosheth, the kind of imposter king, with David, they see how desirable David is. Saul killed his thousands, but David is tens of thousands. Everywhere he goes, God is with him. And it's not just that he's some warlord who wins every battle. They saw that he treated people with tremendous clemency. We've been seeing that over and over again. David says, I am for peace. You are for war. 
They see the heart of somebody who desires to be a shepherd under God for his people. Much more, then, should we desire Christ, of whom David is just a shadow. David's life and his own heart was formed in a way to give you a sense of who Christ is, but much more Christ. First, think about the prophecies. These are a reason why you should desire Christ. Jesus says, the volume of the book was written about me. If you were to take your Bible, your physical Bible, if you have one before you, and you were to hold it up, the whole thing is about Christ. In one form or another, it all points to him. Think about the adulation, the bizarre, sometimes, honor that people show towards celebrities. Somebody who's known for a hit movie back in the 90s still could have an entourage of people. And every time that person shows up in the public, people want to get around them and they feel important just by association. When you hold the Bible and when you pray to Jesus, you are interacting with the person of whom all of that through thousands of years was written about. The tremendous significance of Christ in the scriptures, we should desire him to be our king when you consider that he is God's choice. But he is God's choice on account of his character, his qualities, his record. Read the Gospels, children especially. If you should be familiar with any part of Scripture, know the Gospels before you are even into your teens. Know the stories. See how Jesus deals with people. See his mercy in defending the oppressed. See his righteousness in the face of people who would expect him to flee in fear. Christ is so desirable for our king. But then behold his resurrection and you see the victory. It was he who led us out and led us in. Christ has victory just flowing from his hands everywhere he goes. And therefore, when you consider who Christ is, you should long to have him as your king. This is the Jesus who in John 10 says, I am the good shepherd. May it be an aspect of your regular prayer to say, Christ, please be my shepherd. Please be my king. Reign over me. Reign in me. Because we are always a Saul to ourselves. Or an Ishbosheth. Powerless, weak, tyrannical. Foisting upon ourselves things that we know are terrible for ourselves. And so the first point that we're drawn to is the wisdom of these elders in desiring David and how it parallels the desire that we should have for Christ. The second truth that we glean from this text, second spiritual truth that we can glean, has to do with the dating of David's reign. It seems like an odd point, perhaps, that there would be importance even in the dates here, but it parallels the way that we relate to Christ's kingdom. Look with me at verses 4 and 5. Notice some of the details there. Verses 4 and 5, it dates the reign of David over Judah as beginning at what age? Age 30. And the reign over all Israel beginning at age 37. So there's a seven-year gap between when David is reigning over Judah and then when he's reigning over all the tribes together. David had a destiny that far precedes his actual reign. But his actual reign, belonging to his kingdom, is counted from a specific point. This is very different, by the way, than Ishbosheth, who, if you were to turn back in the text, you'd see Ishbosheth claimed he was king over all. He was not king over all. He was operating no power in Judah. 
And that's the way the world often is. You have rulers to this very day who say, well, I'm the ruler over all these places, then they're not. But they're asserting power in hopes that they eventually gain power. David remarkably had the humility to know that he was destined, even by God, for something, and yet he awaits some significant event before he is acknowledging his own reign over these people. And what is it? It's not conquest, it's covenant. It's not until Judah covenants with David that they will submit to him and have him as their leader that he becomes their king. Seven years later, it's not until Israel covenants with David to submit to him and have him as their king that he becomes their king. There is a parallel here spiritually. By the way, much more could be said and will not be said in this sermon, maybe some other time, concerning how this relates to civil authority, the mutual obligations involved for legitimate authority. But at this point, there's a parallel with Christ's spiritual kingdom. Christ is destined to reign over all his elect, and he certainly will. There will not be one missing in the end. But your part in his kingdom, your claim upon having him as king and all the benefits is tied to covenant. When we believe upon Jesus Christ, we believe upon him as Savior, but also as Lord. And I want to be clear about something. Believing in Christ as Lord is not meritorious in any way. It's not the, something you add. And sometimes this has been described as a so-called lordship controversy. Can somebody be saved who doesn't acknowledge Christ as Lord? And we would simply underscore acknowledging Christ's authority over every aspect of your life, however imperfectly you live up to it, but that sincerely you believe it. This is one of the inevitable evidences of the Holy Spirit's work in you. Israel could not have any other king and have David at the same time. They had to covenant with one. You see that in verse 3. And in turn, David covenants with them. And there is a call to submit to Christ and to give evidence that we are among his kingdom by allying ourselves with his whole way of life. Luke 19 tells a story of Jesus visiting a man named Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a tax collector and he was a corrupt person. He had been stealing for a long time, far more than what was appropriate under the law. And even before his repentance has been evidenced, Jesus agrees to go and eat with him, as Jesus often ate with Pharisees who were unrepentant. And as Jesus is eating with him, Zacchaeus stands up and he states that he will gladly restore what he has stolen from others fourfold. He's trying to fulfill the law. And Jesus says, this day salvation has come to this house. It's not that this act of Zacchaeus's has now gained God's favor and made God his debtor. It's that this is evidence that the Spirit's work is real in the heart of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus has understood what he has received, both a Savior and a Lord, and now he's walking in that. Even so, anyone who wishes to partake in Christ's kingdom to come must in this life give evidence of having been brought into his covenant. Paul says in Acts chapter 26 and verse 18, as he describes his mission to the Gentiles, I was sent, quote, to open their eyes that they may turn from darkness to light 
and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those sanctified by faith in me. When Israel swore allegiance with David, from that point, it's entirely possible among so many hundreds of thousands of people that there were holdouts who did not want David as king. In fact, it seems utterly unlikely that there would not have been. But from that point forward, it would have been the duty of those who had pledged allegiance to David that they would not be at peace with the people who were rebelling. If you have been brought into Christ, then you are called to war with the remaining portion of you that is in constant rebellion against Jesus. We should not expect in this life that all opposition will be put down, and David himself is going to face ongoing opposition. But if you are a Christian, Christ is your king. And so we make sincere war. 1 Timothy 6, verse 14 says, Keep the commandment, unstained and free from reproach, until the appearing of our Lord, Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. Sometimes that is so incredibly difficult. We have to hold before us, and God help us to do so, to genuinely reflect as much on Christ as our Lord as we do on him as our Savior. But even in that text that I just read, 1 Timothy 6, it says, he will be displayed at the proper time. Christ's glory is not yet manifest. Painfully, we wish for it. I remember once when I was in, I think it was freshman year of high school, I was trying to share the gospel with a boy named Christopher. And Christopher was very intellectual, much smarter than myself. He had all these reasons and arguments for why he didn't believe the Bible. And I remember him saying, well, if he really wants me to be saved, why doesn't he just show himself? Christ will. And he has shown himself in different ways to his people. But to expect that at this point he would reveal himself is to mistake his purpose. That's not his will, and you don't get to call what God's will is. And this leads us to the third observation. And this regards the delay between David's first and final anointing. The delay between David's first and final anointing. This was ordained by God in order to, in part, understand this period that we're in right now as we await Christ's kingdom. Appreciate the span, just in case you're not so familiar with the chronology here. David is approximately 15 years old. Some scholars say as young as eight, but 15 seems pretty conservative at the time when he is anointed by the prophet Samuel. He is 37 years old, incidentally my age. I was thinking about that today. If I had been told at 15 that something was going to happen in my life at 37, it would have seemed utterly pointless. Just so far out. At 15, 21 seems unimaginably far. Then you get to the age and you go, it wasn't so long, it's here. And it will be similar for the church. That as we look Ahead, it seems so long, when we look back, we'll say, oh, it was exactly as God ordained, just in the time he appointed. David's first anointing, at that time, it's known to God and just to a handful of people. And then Judah acknowledges David, and for seven years he's being honored by 
a minority. It's not until seven years later, representing a completion, that finally all Israel acknowledges David. And this is wrought by the Holy Spirit in a way that parallels the history of the church. Christ's anointing as the king is known from eternity. And it's made known by the prophets from of old. Isaiah 45, which comes some 600 years before Jesus is born. Isaiah 45, 23. As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. That text is interpreted in the New Testament as clearly speaking of Christ. It's known to a few. Now, presently, the stage that we're in, only a portion, a remnant of all professing people acknowledge Jesus in truth, truly submit to him. I was grieved this week. I was going to say when I opened the news, and there's always something there, isn't there? And this is why we have to look to this. But it was a, a poll, a major poll, done by, I think, the Pew people of religious trends in America. And if I recall correctly, it was something like 27% of professing Christians in the mainline and Roman Catholic tradition, I don't recall the figure for conservative uh, reform people, but it was not, there was faults everywhere. But 27% do not believe that the Bible is the word of God. Yet a portion who do not believe that Jesus is God, but they profess to be Christian, and they go to church regularly. These are the same people, it says, attend church, most of them, at least once a week. We live in a time where only a remnant of those who profess faith in Christ seek to adore him and to honor him as their Lord. You should not let the fact that so many professing Christians do not live as you determine the credibility of the walk that you're in. This is how it was for the Judahites for seven years. And when the Lord sees it as fit, he will reveal his people. He will return. Until then, it's a time of patience. Turn with me and look at one passage. 2 Peter chapter 3. This passage is something of a touchstone for the discussion of how long will Christ delay? Why has he delayed? 2 Peter 3, verses 8 and following, as he, Peter's writing to a persecuted group of Christians. You meet that earlier in the epistle. And if you were being chased out of your home and it was burned and you had lost family and you were on the run, you too would be asking, how long, O Lord? before you reveal yourself in glory. 2 Peter 3.8 says, But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that when the Lord, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. That's not just a metaphor. He exists transcending all categories of time. Time itself, so people who know more than me, seem to say is a construct tied to physicality, time as we experience it. Creation deals in time sequence. God is beyond. He doesn't feel beholden to anxiety as we do. 
He can be as present to this moment as that moment. It's not long ago to him. He is. He is I am. We, out of our creatureliness and our distrust of him, often raise the hand and say, why, Lord, how long do I have to wait? And it can be for the coming of Christ, or it can be something as small as waiting for a response about whether or not you have employment. And we become angry with the Lord because his time doesn't seem to line up with our time. Verse 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Now the you that he's talking about here is qualified in the first verse that we saw, verse 8, beloved, that is the people of God, the covenant ones chosen by him. The Lord is not slow, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. In other words, there are more of you who are going to come to faith. Had the Lord come in 1955, when I'm sure there were some people praying, God, may it be this year, then how many here were not even yet born? And should the Lord tarry for another hundred years or another thousand years, it's none of our business other than to say, thank God, that means there's more elect people. As we are so busy wringing our hands, Lord, bring the fire. The Lord is building up a kingdom. And he's given us a role. He hasn't told us to count the seconds. He's told us to be about his father's business. Verse 10, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar. And the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved. And the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. What manner of life ought we to live when we recognize the kingdom will come and what kind of kingdom it will be? as it says here in holiness and godliness. The things that you invest your life in, invest them as servants of the king. I say that with plenty of my own conviction. It is so easy to use as our yardstick, our neighbor, and not the Lord. As you think about which things you should own, what things you should spend your time on, the scripture calls us to be stewards And as stewards of the king, it's to use everything that we have towards that glory. And that's incredibly difficult. No one of us rises to it completely. But here, recognize the value in all of these things that you have are to the extent that they move towards his glorification. In glory, you will not care how big your home was. In glory, you will not care whether or not you traveled to X, Y, and Z country and saw that one historical thing. I am not saying those are wrong. In this age, we do care quite a bit about those things, and the Lord delights to let us enjoy many fruits of this life. But what will bring you the deepest joy? It will be to hear Christ say, well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy that I have appointed for you. It will be to know that we used a portion of our bounty and time and treasure and talents for our King. 
And so this passage, it drives us. It's, there's so much in it and that we can't touch on. I contemplated touching on some of these things that you did not hear next week. I don't know that we will. It is for you as students of the word, dig in. But we've seen parallels with the kingdom. May we desire Christ. May we belong to him. May we await him. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for giving us access to your kingdom. We thank you that you have not called whom the world counts as the the best, the strongest, the most admirable, but you have called the off-scourings of the world, the weakest, the most sinful. You've called anyone and everyone who desires to have Christ as their king to come and be welcome in him. We pray that you would grant us hearts and lives that manifest our loyalty to him, that you would help us to repent afresh and to believe that his will for us as our king is far better than our own. We pray for the victory that he has wrought upon the cross and at the tomb, his ascension into heaven, that this would work in our lives, that the vision of our future would overwhelm our experience of the present and our memory of the past. We ask all of these things for his glory, thanking you. For in Jesus' name we pray, amen.